Thanks, Glenn, and good morning, everyone. It is great to see you. As Glenn just prayed, my name is Daniel, one of the pastors, and it's great to be together. Uh, I wanted to say a special welcome if you're newer to our church and uh, would love to say hello to you after the service if I haven't met you. I normally stand by the Connect tent, but if it's raining like it was on the way in, I'll be standing by the door, uh, so I won't be there, but I, I would love to say hello to you after the service. Uh, this morning, we are starting a new sermon series that I'm really excited about. It's a seven-week series uh, beginning today, obviously, and we'll continue all the way through Lent, which starts this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. And if you missed the announcements Evan gave earlier, let me invite you again to join us for our Ash Wednesday service, 6 p.m. here on Wednesday night. Uh, we also will do the imposition of ashes uh, on Wednesday morning on the steps of the sanctuary, and so you could come to, to that as well. And I realize Lent is only six Sundays, but we're going to start this series today because I want us to spend this season looking at the last seven words of Jesus from the cross. I want us to listen to Jesus' dying words in order to understand what Jesus is doing and what the cross is all about. For the next seven weeks, I want us to sit in the darkness of that awful yet awe-filled day that the church calls Good Friday. I want us to embrace the darkness of the cross and not rush too quickly to the light of Easter. And as we think about the cross, I think for many it has become a symbol, a religious symbol to wear around the neck or to hang upon the wall. For many it's a symbol of love, but the cross for the Christian is way more than a mere metaphor of self-sacrifice or self-giving love. As Christians, we believe the cross is the turning point in human history. That the cross is Jesus' great creative masterpiece. For as he is bound and nailed to a cross, Jesus remakes the world. From the cross, Jesus speaks seven last words or seven last statements. I love what the 13th century Franciscan theologian St. Bonaventure wrote about these seven last words. He, he wrote, Our vine uttered seven words while he was raised upon the cross. They are, as it were, seven leaves that are evergreen. Or if you prefer, your bridegroom can be thought of as a lute, which is an instrument that consists of a piece of wood shaped like a cross. His body, in place of the strings, is stretched across the wood. But the seven words are the individual strings. What St. Bonaventure is saying is, as we listen to these seven last words, we hear the full melody of what Jesus is doing on the cross. And this morning, we hear Jesus' first saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to give attention to God's Word in Luke 23, verses 32 to 38. This is God's Word to us this morning. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Pray with me. Well, God, we ask that your spirit would take the words just read and plant them deep within our hearts. 
communicate to our spirits what is true, what is true about Jesus, what is true because of the cross. That we might understand and understanding we might be transformed. I pray that you would speak, Jesus. The words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you in this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, some of you, I'm sure, know of the incredible band, the North Carolina band, Avett Brothers, a band that I thoroughly enjoy. Okay, we've got some claps. All right. A band that I uh, thoroughly enjoy. Uh, there's a great song that they have titled hard Feel- uh, No Hard Feelings. It's in the second verse of the song, this is what they sing. When the sun hangs low in the west and the light in my chest won't be kept held at bay any longer, when the jealousy fades away and it's ash and dust for cash and lust, and it's just hallelujah, and love and thought, love in the words, love in the songs they sing in the church, and no hard feelings. They're singing and they're thinking about life coming to an end. They're, they're reflecting on life and, and they're singing, from dust you were born and from, to dust you shall return. Life is ashes. And they realize as they look at their life that they have lived mostly for cash and lust. And what they long to know is that the songs of the church are true. What they long to know is that the love of God is real. What they long to know is that between God and man, there may be no hard feelings. It's a great song about the longing for forgiveness. Forgiveness with God is found at the cross. At the cross, we behold Jesus with outstretched arms as if to gather the world to himself. And he looks at us, and then he looks at his Father, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I want us to consider three things this morning. The need for forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness, and the gift of forgiveness. Let's look first at the need for forgiveness. I know many in our secular world uh, want to tell us that guilt and shame need to go away, that the feelings of guilt and shame arise from condemning judgments of families or, or tribes or religions, that guilt and shame, thus the need for forgiveness, is merely subjective. And we as a culture need to move beyond this antiquated view of humanity. And Russell Moore recently had an article in Christianity Today called Grace in the Age of Guilt. I want you to listen to some of what he writes. He said, for so long, so many have assumed that sin and guilt are outdated categories, suited for a medieval era, but not for this one. The prophets and apostles, though, told us that sin and guilt, along with a search for a meaning to life, the fear of death, and an answer to shame, might be culturally amplified realities, but they are not culturally created. Guilt and shame are fallen human conditions, not ancient or pre-modern or modern or post-modern ones. The question is not whether the world around is grappling with guilty consciences, but how. And I really like Moore's words there at the end. The question is not whether the world around is grappling with guilty consciences, but how. And in this article, Moore referencing other writers talks about the outrage online culture of our day as being one of the main ways people are dealing with their own guilt. The ability to go online and condemn and judge others is a way of feeling superior. It's the inflation of the ego, which according to the article is a way of dealing with and numbing our own sense of guilt and condemnation. And as Moore says, this is not new. The Bible actually tells us this is how humanity has operated since Genesis chapter 3. 
When Adam and Eve sinned and experienced guilt and shame in the Garden of Eden, the first thing that happened is they realized they were naked and they found fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. And since that day, cultures and societies have been creatively making different types of fig leaves, different ways to cover up the feeling of being exposed, to cover up the feeling of guilt and shame. And outrage is very much a fig leaf worn today, but so is perfectionism, so is workaholism, so is creating and curating your own Instagram page or padding your retirement account or the obsession of one's body image, so is helicopter parenting and fitting in and being cool and the list goes on and on. All of these can be fig leaves that we use to hide our feelings of being exposed, covering up our feelings of guilt and shame. Great effort has been given to say guilt and shame are outdated, but we know it's not. They're not culturally created feelings. They are culturally amplified. We all experience the feelings of guilt and shame. The question is, how do you deal with it? And in this first statement, Jesus reveals that he would go to the cross in order to deal with our guilt and shame. Hanging on the cross, Jesus looks down at us, and then he looks up at the Father, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cross was the most horrific and shameful death one could experience. Fleming Rutledge writes that the point and the purpose of the cross was to shame a person to death. A crucifixion was not against the law. In fact, it was carried out by the law. It was not done in secret dungeons, but in public. Everyone knew what it looked like, smelled like, and sounded like. The horrific sight of a completely naked man in agony. The smell and sight of their bodily functions taking place in full view of all. The sounds of their groans and labored breathing going on for hours and in some cases days. A crucified person was a despised person. They were viewed as subhuman, not good enough to live. The cross was a brutal display of evil's creativity. And I'm sure you've seen some paintings or even can imagine the faces of those mocking and scorning and driving the nails into the hands and feet of Jesus. It's the same faces that maybe you've seen or can imagine as angry mobs of white people lynched black people during Jim Crow. It's the same faces, names, people that you could maybe have seen or could imagine as Hamas stormed into Israel and slaughtered children and women on October 7th. And these brutal murders are like the brutal murder of Jesus on the cross, revealing the horrors of the human heart. And we might ask ourselves, how could people do such a thing? There's an old gospel song that we sing here on uh, almost every Good Friday service. Were you there when they crucified the Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to a tree? And many of us are quick to respond, no, I wasn't there. And if I were there, I would, I, I would never have done that. Are you so sure? If you were to strip away all of your comforts that you indulge in, if, if someone were to take away everything you boast in, everything you rely upon, who would you be? If you had nothing but what was in your heart, what would be revealed? Be honest for a moment. Think about that word of encouragement withheld. That touch of kindness not given, the trust betrayed, the visit not made, 
the cutting remarks so clever and so cruel, the illicit sexual desire so generously entertained, the angry answer, the surge of resentment at being slighted, the lie that we thought would do no harm. The list of little things in our hearts are long and tedious. If you look at Romans chapter 1, just take Romans chapter 1 and and what the Apostle Paul says there and you put it next to your life, where do you find guilt? All the times you've been tempted to repay evil for evil, tempted to withhold love and good deeds from someone, the times that you've ignored God and done the things he's asked you not to, the times that anger reached up and grabbed you and you had no control and you didn't know where it came from, the times your heart was filled with lust, the times you dishonored your body or you dishonored another person's body, the times you've been filled with unrighteousness, envy, malice, murder, the times you've used your mouth that God gave you to gossip and slander, the times you hated God for things in your life, the times you've been haughty or boastful, the times you've disobeyed your parents, the times you've known what God wants you to do and you refuse to do it, the times you've turned away from the suffering of neighbor or from rejoicing with neighbor. Brothers and sisters, Romans chapter 3 is true. We are all guilty. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we are in need of forgiveness. Let's look second at the cost of forgiveness. And forgiveness, it's hard. You know it is if you've ever had to give it. But it's hard because someone actually did something wrong to you. They maybe abused you, manipulated you, slandered you, lied to you, stole from you, and naturally we want and demand payment. We demand justice and we struggle to forgive. And if we're not aware, we become like the people who hurt us, wounded people wounding other people. And the reality of forgiveness is the only person who can forgive is the person who's been wronged. Right? If I wrong Timothy in some way, I can't go to Evan and ask Evan to forgive me. He can't. I can't go to my wife and say, Rachel, will you forgive me for what I did to Timothy? Only Timothy can forgive me. And for Timothy to forgive me, he would have to absorb the cost of not making me pay for what I did to him. He would have to say, Daniel, I forgive you. I'm not going to hold this over you. I'm not going to look to get you back. I'm not going to bring this up two years from now. This is the price paid to extend forgiveness. And the cross is Jesus absorbing the cost of our sin. At the cross, Jesus is paying the price. He's taking upon himself the punishment of our sin so that we could receive forgiveness. Let me ask you a question. When you think about it, what's your view of God? If you're really honest, maybe you have a view of God as kind of a deity who kind of winks at the atrocities and sins of the world, kind of a, a big granddad in the sky who lets people get away with wrongs, a God of sentimental love who just wants to love all people and there's no sense of justice. Or maybe you have a, a view of God as one who's harsh and, and quick to punish, kind of a, a, an abusive father who inflicts child abuse on his only son, a kind of God who's sitting up twirling his mustache and waiting to get you when you sin. The God of the Bible is neither of these. The God of the Bible is a God of mercy and justice. And at the cross, we see mercy and justice meet. The cross is the clearest revelation of who God is. At the cross, the Father and the Son are in communion. Jesus is talking to his Father. 
And the, and the son with the joy set before him endures the cross, absorbing the cost of sin, taking justice upon himself. And the Holy Spirit applies forgiveness and grace to us. At the cross, we behold the triune God's pact of redemption that was made in eternity. The Father, Son, and Spirit together redeeming the world. So hear me, brothers and sisters, if the only word you hear from God is a word of judgment or a word of condemnation, it's not the voice of Jesus. Jesus does not say, Father, get them. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's look lastly at the gift of forgiveness. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful God's not like me, that he's not like us. Because I have to confess, I, I am quick to want revenge when I've been wronged. I want to repay quickly, and I actually, more often than not, want to pay back with more punitive damage than was done to me. Right? As a dad now of two older boys, and I, I kind of reflect on me and my brother growing up. Right? I'll see the two boys, something, someone starts it, it's got to be initiated somewhere. Maybe it's a word, and the other one responds with a push. And the other one comes back with a little harder of a push. And then one throws the punch. And then one comes back with a harder punch. Right? And so it goes until mom or dad breaks it up. This is how humanity is wired. We want to pay back. And if we don't pay back immediately, we hold on to resentment like it's currency to spend at a later time when we decide in our own choosing. But forgiveness is, is purely a gift. It's complete grace. It's giving someone what they don't deserve. And Jesus, in these first of his last words from the cross, gives us understanding just how high and wide and deep is the grace of God. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I don't know about you, but when I hear Jesus say this, I think, yes, they did. They knew what they were doing. When they took the hammer and the nails and they drove them into his hands and his feet, they knew what they were doing when they stood him up on the cross to publicly shame him before all people. They knew what they were doing as they left him struggle to struggle to breathe until he breathed his last. But Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when Jesus says this, I think what he is saying is that there is something so horrific and so deep about our sin that we actually don't always know when it's operating within us. Simone Vell, a former French magistrate and Holocaust survivor, wrote it this way, Evil, when we are in its power, is not felt as evil, but as a necessary, even a duty. Sin is that power at work in us, which we don't always know is operating. It's the anger that comes out of nowhere. The anger welling up inside and grabbing us by the throat, and we wonder, where did that come from? It's that power at work when those thoughts go through our minds or those words come out of our mouths and we think, where did that come from? It's the power we can't control, we cannot stop, and we don't understand when it rages. The line of evil runs deep in our hearts. We are in the grip of something we don't fully comprehend. And back to the gospel song, were you there when they crucified the Lord? And maybe you think, if I were there, Daniel... I wouldn't have participated in such gross horror. But I think one of the greatest tragedies of the cross is the thousands of people who merely passed by Jesus. The thousands of people that could have stopped the momentum of evil but simply remained passive. And this too is evil. Sin runs deep in all of us. There are sins of omission, not doing things we should do, and there are sins of commission, doing things we should not do. 
And Jesus looks down at his enemies while on the cross and he prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgiveness is a gift of grace. He looks down at us in our sin. He looks up at the Father and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in doing this, our Savior is declaring that there is no sin beyond the reach of his prayers. That there is no sin too great that his forgiveness does not extend. There is no person too great an enemy to be beyond his reach. And I am so grateful that Jesus' forgiveness extends beyond that which I know or even can name. I hope you are too. Let's pray. Lord God, overwhelm us with the truth that comes through the cross that in Christ we are forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.